Well, in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games, Susanna Kalur of Sweden was the favorite to win the 100-meter hurdles event. Sana, as she was known in Sweden, was really the clear favorite because she already held the world record for the 60-meter hurdle, and she had uh, massed all the other world championship titles and gold medals leading up to Beijing. And so it was almost really a formality for her to uh, win all of her heats in the quarterfinals, semifinals, and then go on to get gold. Uh, so she won those heats with ease, and she was on her unstoppable winning streak, and it seemed that she was destined for Olympic gold, but it was not to be. There was one race left that she had to do before qualifying, and that was the semifinals. The gun sounded, and Sana launched out of the starting blocks, but on the very first hurdle, her front foot clipped the beam as she traversed it, and she fell face first onto the astroturf. The cameraman caught the whole thing in slow motion, just the bewilderment and surprise and shock of the fall, and then the anguish and terror as she looked up and saw her Olympic dreams running away from her. She never really recovered psychologically from that fall. Uh, the rest of her career, she was plagued with self-doubt and injury, um, briefly attempting to regain that glory, but she never did and eventually retired. She had cleared over 100,000 hurdles during training, and yet it was that one hurdle that brought her downfall. It was hurdles that made Susanna Kalur famous, and it was a hurdle that ended her career. In the same way, in salvation, there is one hurdle that you have to get over in order to be saved, a hurdle over which many have stumbled, and that hurdle is Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we've been going through 1 Peter, last week we saw that, uh, we learned about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Remember there was this one little mistake made, an error of 3.97 degrees that led over time to be the world's most notorious and obvious architectural blunder. And in the same way, if you make one little mistake in your theology and you build a whole foundation of uh, theology on the wrong facts and you don't have the truth, you can end up with a wonky theology. Well, in the same way, it's uh, crucial to line up our salvation to God's only acceptable standard, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. So that's what we looked at last week. We saw three factors to consider when laying a foundation for your faith. The cornerstone of belief, your faith has to be built on Jesus Christ. He's the only way to salvation. The confidence of believers the promise is that even though you're going all in with this one big bet, uh, the risk is uh, negligible because we've put all of our faith in Jesus and we will never be put to shame. And then the consequence of unbelievers, we touched on last week and said we would elaborate a little bit more this week. Um, the very rock that is the cornerstone of your salvation is also the rock which you get crushed by if you reject it. And in that sense, everybody's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. You must choose Jesus or Jesus becomes the reason that you are uh, condemned. That's the consequence of unbelievers. So let's pick it up in verse 4. 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Just until there this morning, and we're going to be focusing on that verse 8. We're going to look at three hurdles that cause people to reject Christ. Those three hurdles are the hurdle of offense, the hurdle of obedience, and the hurdle of ordination, as we shall see. So firstly, the hurdle of offense. This is something people trip over, and they don't become saved, and it's because of this offense. Verse in, seen in verse 7. Uh, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, unbelievers, there's this verse that he quotes. The stone that the builders rejected has become or has turned out to be the cornerstone. So here Peter is shifting from the carrot to the stick. Uh, the, he, he offers this wonderful promise that you will be saved if you come to Jesus. And he says it this way, the honor is for you who believe. For believers, there is this honor. You will not be put to shame. You have made the right decision by staking your salvation on Christ. But some people don't respond well to the carrot. They need the stick. And so he shifts gears here and gets into a very stern warning that if you reject Jesus Christ, this is what awaits you. But for those who do not believe, and then he quotes another verse, the stone that the builders rejected has turned out to be the corner stone. The Jews got a lot right in their religion. They, theirs was the right religion based on the Old Testament scriptures that God had revealed to mankind. But for the Jews who rejected Jesus Christ as the culmination of the whole sacrificial system, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that all of those lambs that had been sacrificed were pointing towards. For the Jews that rejected Christ as their Messiah, it turns out that he is now the hurdle that they stumble over. That he is now the reason that their religion is a false religion. So in a very real sense, Christianity is just Judaism in its consummation. We are the true Jews in that sense, that the, the true religion of the, the Old Testament scriptures culminated in Christ and carried on through the New Testament. But if you reject Christ, then your religion is now a false religion because now you are placing your faith in something other than the coming Messiah or the Messiah who has come. You're, you're placing your faith in a false Messiah that will never come. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. That's 1 Corinthians 1, 23. You see, the Jews couldn't get over the fact that this glorious Messiah, the Son of God, the King that they'd placed all of their faith in, was somebody who ended up despised, rejected, crucified, a shameful death, and buried. And the Gentiles couldn't get over the fact that, well, he's the only way. I mean, they didn't mind people claiming to be gods. They were polytheists. You can have multiple gods. But they 
to them, it was folly to think that this God became a man and then he died. And now we're supposed to believe in him and no other God. And so Jesus was the stumbling block for the Jews and a hurdle for the Gentiles. Anyone who couldn't get over the fact that the truth about him was now unacceptable to them. Jesus is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's the one hurdle people can't clear. I know this might sound strange to say, but I have been amazed in my life at what an obstacle to my evangelism Jesus is. I mean, if I'm evangelizing somebody, I'm trying to build a relationship with them, I'm trying to introduce them to the gospel so that they can be saved because of the compulsion in me through the Holy Spirit to share the truth with them because of the love that I have for them. And I can have a very good, meaningful, philosophical conversation with a Muslim. And I have before. And with a Buddhist or a Jehovah's Witness or even an atheist. There's a lot that we have in common. There's lots of things that we can agree on. But when I get to the part where I say, oh, and I worship Jesus Christ as my God, and he is the only God, and anyone who rejects him will be punished for their sin, it's like I've thrown a tree trunk on the freeway causing a five-car Christological pileup. People cannot get over that. They don't mind that you like Jesus. They just mind that you insist that everybody else does too. John MacArthur says, Jesus' crucifixion is a massive obstacle to the proclamation of salvation. If God could have thought of the worst possible way to make a message marketable, this would be it. A crucified God is insane, scandalous, scurrilous, impossible to believe. And yet that is the message the apostles had to preach. First of all, they had to identify the person to whom they were preaching it as a sinner under divine wrath headed for hell and then tell them that their only hope was a crucified God. That is a tough sell, unquote. Do you understand that this is why Christians are often labeled as intolerant? Have you ever heard that? Christians are just, they're intolerant. We're all getting along just fine, but it's these Christians that can't get along with us. I mean, it's a, remarkable to me how many religions are busy changing their policy about various sinful activities that for centuries have been seen as sinful in their religions, but now suddenly are becoming acceptable because, well, that's what society needs for us to all get along. And the people that aren't bowing the knee are the Christians. They're the fly in the ointment. They're the, the wrench in the machine. I mean... If only the Christians could get on board with this whole ecumenical world movement to, towards peace, we, we could maybe get something done. The problem is that when a Christian compromises on the exclusivity of Christ, he or she is deforming the very gospel that saves people. That's not loving. To offer somebody something that's not going to save them and then dupe them into thinking that it will save them is the height of being unloving. And yet there are people who call themselves Christians who feel that this is the right thing to do. Take the offensive part out of the gospel, the part where you're a sinner that needs a savior and there's only one savior and it has to be Jesus. Let's take that part out. We can all get along. So much we can work together on. We can fight abortion together. 
You know, we can stand up for prayer in schools as long as you pray to somebody. It doesn't really matter who. Let's just get it back in. We just have to take out this whole exclusivity clause, the non-compete clause, that Jesus is the only way. And so what happens is these Christians will say things on behalf of the church that just aren't true. That's not what we believe for those who are committed to Scripture. You can't win a Nobel Peace Prize if you quote the Bible. That might surprise you because in 1984, the Nobel Peace Prize was won by a Christian leader, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And Desmond Tutu, a South African Archbishop, is a man that did tremendous good for the country. It was him that called for international sanctions that eventually helped bring apartheid to its knees, and they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize. But what about this whole thing of his Christianity? Well, that wasn't a problem. Nobody had a problem with that because he said, quote, Jesus was quite serious when he said that God was our father, that we belonged all to one family, because in this family all, not some, are insiders. Bush, Bin Laden, all belong. Gay, lesbian, so-called straight, all belong and are loved and are precious, unquote. He wasn't saying this in 1984, but this is what he was saying later on. About relations with Muslims, he said, I hope that the World Council of Churches will preach that it is adherents of a faith who are good or bad, not the faith, unquote. So when he was asked about what Christians think about Muslims, his answer is that I hope that the World Council of all the churches will agree that there are good and bad people within a faith, they are good Muslims and bad Muslims, but that there's no faith, no religion that's bad or that's wrong. This is not Christianity. Do you think Desmond Tutu would have won the Nobel Peace Prize if he had quoted John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me? How about John 8, 42? If God were your father, you would love me, Jesus said. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. No, you see, that sounds a little bit intolerant. <laughs> And exclusive. So to make Christianity inoffensive, you have to ignore the offensive parts of the gospel, which include Jesus and what he said. And then you don't have Christianity at all. And that's not loving because those people will find out that he is the rock of offense on the day of judgment. So the honor is for you who believe, Peter says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the bulges rejected has turned out to be the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So that's one reason why some reject Christ and are not saved, because of the hurdle of offense about what God says about who Jesus is. But there's another hurdle, the hurdle of obedience. This is another reason people reject Jesus Christ, because of obedience. Verse 8 says, they stumble because they disobey the word. They stumble over Jesus, not necessarily because they have a problem with Jesus. There may be people even here today or listening to the sermon today who say, I like the stories about Jesus. I accept the stories about Jesus. I accept that he was the son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on our behalf on the cross, that he rose from the dead. Hey, I mean, if that's what it takes, if that's all it takes for me to believe to get a savior, I'm in. 
But they're still stumbling over Jesus because they, they might not reject him as a person and stumble over him, but they are rejecting his teachings that he is their Lord. They reject his lordship. I'll be a Christian as long as I don't have to change anything about my life that I don't want to. And so you, in fact, have this kind of sub-theology that's grown up uh, in Christianity where people sort of try to br bring this distinction between you can accept Jesus as your Savior, and then later in life you should also accept him as your Lord. Have you heard that before? Jesus is your Savior because, you know, when you were six years old, you threw a pine cone into the fire at the youth group uh, if you were all in for Jesus, and now, yay, whew, at least he's got his fire insurance. He's going to heaven. Yeah, he grows up to be you know, gay, serial killer, axe murderer. But at least he's saved. Prayed the prayer. Please, please pray for little Johnny now that he's a drug dealer. Um, please pray that he accepts Jesus as his Lord too. And, they, and they, they bifurcate Christianity into Savior and Lord. The Bible says that the, there's one Jesus. He's your Savior and your Lord or he's nothing to you. He's your judge. He's the rock of offense. And so there's this hurdle of obedience. They stumble because they disobey the word. To be a Christian is a person who's committed to obey Jesus Christ. That's why we read the Bible, so we can learn what it is that he wants from us. How should we think about the things happening in society today? Well, let's read and find out what God wants us to think. What should I do about this uh, relationship or this business decision or this lifestyle choice? Let's read what Jesus wants and obey him. Why? Because I'm a Christian. He's my Lord. But people stumble over Jesus Christ because even they accept all the Savior part of stuff, they reject the Lordship. They don't want to give up their sinful lifestyle like the worship of their career or self. They don't want to give up their sinful pleasures like drunkenness or promiscuity. They don't want to give up their sinful views like feminism or transgenderism. They think that these things are good. They think that they're in vogue. They think they're more tolerant and, and better for society. But then they read in the Bible, the Bible says something different. And so then they, they disobey the word. John 3, 19, Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. According to Jesus, the reason people reject the light of the gospel is because they love their sin. And if you accept Jesus, you don't get your sin. And to try to concoct some sort of homebrew religion where you can have Jesus and your sin is to neuter Christianity of its saving power. So if a person is rejecting your gospel presentation, just know that it's likely because there's something that they're doing that they don't want to give up. What you mustn't do is try to make it easier for them by ignoring God's requirement that they obey Jesus Christ for a very simple reason. If you ignore a hurdle, does it go away?
they will find out on Judgment Day that that hurdle is there, whether you told them about it or not. Well, there's a third hurdle that prevents people from being saved. The hurdle of ordination. So there's a hurdle of offense. They reject the person of Jesus. The hurdle of obedience. They accept Jesus, but not that they have to obey him. Or there's the hurdle of ordination. By this I mean that God ordains the future, that he preordains or decides beforehand. So this is the part where you're going to have to take a deep breath because we're going to go diving into some deep theology. If you can't deal with it, don't worry. We will resuscitate you at the end. By ordination, it means not only that God knows the route the train will take, but that he is the one that laid the tracks. And so we call this destiny. Verse 8 says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So this is another reason that people end up unsaved. They end up not believing in Jesus. One, they either reject who Jesus is, they just can't get over those claims, or they reject that he's the Lord and they don't want to obey him. But ultimately, why do they do that? Because they were destined to stumble over him. This is a very mysterious doctrine. As I said last week, trying to understand this doctrine is like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube that is smeared with butter um, while you are underwater, blindfolded, wearing mittens but we're going to try. The word destined here can be translated appointed. Some versions translate it that way. Um, it's the concept of being ordained. It's the same word that Peter used, look in verse 6, when he said that he's laying a cornerstone. He said, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. That word laying is appointing, um, deciding to put there. It's the, same, it's the same word in Greek here as they were destined to do. In other words, I was appointing a stone, and now I'm appointing that they stumble over that stone. Same word. It's the word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, that says, For God has not destined us for wrath. He's not appointed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the context there is he's talking about the tribulation time that's going to come in the end times. Those seven years of God's wrath being poured on the earth to judge the world. And so that's why in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he's saying that the church will be removed before that seven-year period, a doctrine called rapture, the word that he uses there to, to catch up. Why? Because we're not appointed for wrath, but for salvation. So who is appointed for wrath? Sorry, if you're new here. Wrath. Who's, who's appointed for wrath? For God's judgment. Who? Not, not the church. They're appointed for salvation. So my point simply here is that Paul and Peter are using this word to appoint, to destine, to ordain, to decide. God decides who gets the wrath and who gets removed. God decides who accepts Christ and who stumbles over him or rejects him because they don't want to obey. That's why this is such a mysterious thing because it just doesn't, gel with our own experience. The reason I'm a Christian is because I chose to be. And that's not wrong. That's not a wrong statement. I am a Christian because I chose to be. The Bible says, choose life and not death. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I did. So did you, if you're a believer. The question is, why? Why did you choose? And 
Is it because you were better than the person who didn't choose? Well, we know from all of the Bible that's not true. It's not because of your works, because of your goodness. So why? Why did I choose? And what the Bible teaches is because it was my destiny in that sense, that God had laid these tracks beforehand, that he had ordained this. It is a difficult doctrine to understand. It's mysterious, but it is taught all over the Bible. We see this concept in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. The first time Gentiles start believing, um, they preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and, and look which Gentiles believe and which don't. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that, that they could be saved, the, the gospel. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So when the apostles preached the gospel to a group of Gentiles, some believe, some don't believe. Who are the ones that believe according to Acts 13? As many as who were appointed not, and the good ones in the group said, yay. Not the Gentiles who weren't as committed to their idols said, I'm in. No, those who were appointed believed. Those who were destined. So I, there's an illustration I've used, and in fact, I think I've used it quite recently, but rather than come up with a new one, I'm going to use the same one just so that if you ever get into a conversation or you're thinking about this, You'll be like, well, this is the illustration Pastor Clint always uses, so it'll pop in your mind. Um, the story of Macbeth. So Macbeth is minding his own business when he meets the three witches, and they predict that he's going to become king. Problem is that he's not king. King Duncan is king. And so he goes home, and he tells his wonderful wife, um, Lady Macbeth, who's just a sweetie, that you won't believe it. These witches said, I'm going to be king. So in Macbeth's mind, he's just going to wait it out until that future happens. If the prediction's true, he's going to become king. But Lady Macbeth, she's a bit more proactive, a little type A. And she says, no, 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 no. If the witches said you're going to become king, we need to do something to make that happen. And so, you know, out, out, spot, and all that kind of stuff, he dies. Uh, Duncan dies. They kill him. And Macbeth becomes king. And so now my question to you is, why did Macbeth become king? If you ever take a class in this in college, this is the essay you will get. You don't have to study the other stuff. They always ask this. They always ask, why did Macbeth become king? Was it because of his own hubris and his own ambition? Or was it because it was his destiny, as predicted by the witches? And then you write an essay on what your view is. But let's face it. Whether it was his ambition or his hubris, whether it was Lady Macbeth's manipulation and influence, or whether it was a destiny that had been laid ahead and predicted by the witches, ultimately you could take a step back and say, Macbeth ended up king because that's the way Shakespeare wrote the play. Every time you watch the Scottish play, that's what's going to happen. The king's going to die, Macbeth's going to take it, and then I won't spoil the rest. It's a really good story. But every single time, it's exactly the same. Why? Because that's how Shakespeare wrote it. Now, the characters don't feel that happening, but we know that that's what happened. Well, now, transfer that illustration into the world of theology. Why do you choose Christ? Is it because there's something in you that is drawn to him, that understands the gospel, that hates your sin, that embraces Christ? Yes, that's your experience. Or is it because 
This is history that was written before you were even born by God, the ultimate author of history. And the answer is yes. So they're both right. It depends on your perspective. If you are an actor on the play playing Macbeth, you are embodying the turmoil Macbeth has about this, this ambition in him and, and his wife and the witches. But if you are in the audience, you know who wrote the play and you know what's going to happen. So when you look at a person's destiny, don't get confused. Don't even tell people, well, you'll believe if you're destined to believe. No, they need to wrestle through this. They need to reject their sin and embrace Christ. And if they don't, he's the stumbling block and they will be judged for it and it'll be their fault. But if you step back and have a look at, well, why do things happen? You know that God ordained history. Now, some people say that God doesn't ordain history. He just knows all of history. Maybe you've heard that. They sometimes say it like this. What he did is he looked down the corridors of time and saw what people would choose and made his decisions based on that. And the reason people do that is because they want to take God out of the equation for why people end up judged. We can handle understanding a person goes to hell because they deserve it. We can't understand, well, a person goes to hell because they deserve it, but they were destined to make those decisions before they were even born. How can it be their fault? And so what starts happening is we start wrestling with, as actors on the stage, trying to understand something without acknowledging that someone wrote the script. And it becomes confusing. So let me just explain it this way. Everything that the Bible teaches about how salvation works, that's like lifting the hood of a car and seeing how the engine works. And some of you are very engine-minded. When you drive a car, you want to know how the spark plugs get the thing and the piston and the... I have no idea. I'm not that guy. There's a lot of you who can open the hood and see what's happening. When I teach my daughter to drive, we're just going to skip that whole part. Okay? We're not going to even look under the hood. I'm just going to tell her, you press this button and the engine will come on. If it doesn't explode, you'll know about it. You'll be alive. So, and then this pedal does this, and this is how you do it. Voila. Those are kind of the two levels that theology operates. The Bible does tell us, look under the hood. This is how salvation works. God is in control of all things. That's why he gets all the glory. But you don't have to understand that to live the Christian life. You just have to believe it. You just have to trust. I just trust that my car is going to work. I have no clue how it's going to work. I just trust. In the same way, you just need to trust. If I put my faith in Jesus... He saves me. Why I chose him, why my evil twin brother didn't choose him, I don't need to know. Now, for those of you who are theologically inclined, you want to know? It tells you. But you don't have to know that to be saved, and you don't have to believe, or uh, you don't have to understand that to be saved, but you do have to believe it. So, when people say God doesn't ordain history, he just knows the future, there's two problems with that. One is that even if foreknowledge is just a knowledge of the future, you still have the same problem. There's this inescapable future that this poor person has no chance of choosing one way or the other because the future is already there. In fact, it's worse because now God has no control over it. So foreknowledge is not really a... It doesn't solve the Rubik's Cube at all. It's still got the same problem. That person... Why even pray for that person to be saved? Their future is already written. The bigger problem is, though, it's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible doesn't say God looks down the future and then makes his decision. This is what the Bible says. And this is just one of dozens of passages I could have picked. A famous one, Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old? For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. And I will do it. Does that sound like someone who says, I've seen how history played out. I'm going to make some decisions based on that. No, he says, I declared the beginning from the end. I'm the author that wrote the whole play. I knew how it was going to end. When Shakespeare wrote about the witches predicting that, he knew how it was going to end. That's what God says. I declared the end from the beginning. So in our passage, when verse 8 says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, what that means is one of the reasons why people end up stumbling over Jesus and disobeying him is because God ordained that history, that plan. Now, is that easy to understand? No. My brain is a thimble, and God's wisdom is an ocean. My thimble gets topped up pretty quick. And so that's why I just need to trust and obey that when the Bible says something's true, it's true. And the more over the years that I've studied this doctrine and meditated on it and prayed through it, the more I've understood, but that's like making a thimble just a little bit bigger. There's still a whole lot more out there. And so when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him to explain it to me. When I don't have any sin in my brain. And hopefully I can understand better. Now, God sometimes tells us his reasons, because that's where we all end up as Christians. We're just like, but why does he do it this way? Okay, well, sometimes he tells us his reasons. For example, in Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, what happened was, in the book of Joshua, Israelite, the Israelites have come after the exodus out of Egypt, and they're supposed to conquer the promised land. It was promised to them. But they get there, and they don't want to fight. You know, they take, they take Jericho by walking around it. That's cool. They take Ai, and they... But, in the AI battle, they lose some people. They're like, this isn't fun. So they decide to, let's just live and let live. We'll just set up little Israeli camps among the Canaanite people, which is not what God told them to do. He said, I want you to go in. I want you to chase them all out. Anyone that stays behind, just kill them. And they're like, yeah, I don't know about that. So we're just going to live and let live and let, hope everybody just leaves us here peacefully. But that's not what God wanted. He wanted them to drive out the Canaanites. So what did he do? Joshua eleven twenty, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, the hearts of the pagan nations, that they should come out against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed as the Lord commanded Moses. That is an incredible verse. Joshua eleven twenty. The Israelites didn't want to fight the pagan nations, so God hardened the pagan nations' hearts so that they would attack Israel, so that Israel would be forced to fight to defend herself and then destroy them utterly in that process, because that's what God wanted. And you kind of say, but didn't the pagan nations have free will and just decide not to go and beat this in unbeatable force? God hardened their hearts. You see the same thing with the Pharaoh. God wanted the ten plagues to play out, including the death of the firstborn. And the Pharaoh, he taps out early on. 
before the tenth plague comes. So what does God do? He says he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not allow the Israelites to go, so that God could go through all the plagues. So he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Where's Pharaoh's free will? It's what it says. So sometimes God does tell us his will. This is why I'm hardening this person's heart, because I have this part of the plan that needs to be accomplished. But there's sometimes he doesn't tell us his will. And we read one of those earlier today, Romans 9. So in Romans 9, 18, Paul says, So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So this is, this is so fascinating. It's one of the most fascinating arguments I've seen in Scripture, where Paul says, so let me tell you, this is what happened with Pharaoh, verse 17. This very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you. So I hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you're following my logic, Paul says, all this logic from earlier on, before they've done anything good or bad, I chose Jacob and Esau. They were still in the womb. They hadn't done anything wrong. Esau wasn't a, Esau wasn't a bad guy. I just chose Jacob and I rejected Esau. If you're following my logic, you're going to say to me, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? How can you blame somebody for rejecting you if you're the one that hardened their heart? So the fact that Paul writes that means you are tracking with it. You are understanding the, the argument rightly at that point. That that's what he said. God chooses. So what's the answer? So he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. Why do you still find fault? Verse 20, here. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? <laughs> well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, one for dishonorable use? So sometimes God doesn't give us the answer. Paul says, if you're tracking with my argument that God hardens whom he hardens, some people disobey because they were destined to disobey, then you're going to say, but then why is it their fault? Good, you've understood what I've taught you from the Bible. Oh, and the answer is, don't talk back to God. He's in charge, that's why. Now, I understand why the majority of Baptist Christians don't like this doctrine. I understand that. Fingernails and a chalkboard, I get all that. It just sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? That's not our question today. Our question is only, what does the Bible teach? And then my job is to trust and obey the Bible. The more I do that, the more things start to make sense to me. And Paul even goes on to give a, a what if. Well, what if God desiring to show wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of the glory for the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared for destruction. So Paul says, well, maybe one of the reasons God does it this way is that these people that reject him and deserve the wrath that they're going to get because they hate him and they reject his savior, maybe he puts up with them for long enough just so that we can see how evil they are and how evil the world is. And then he judges them so that we can understand his great mercy on us and how we didn't deserve it. Because we could have been in that boat too. So Paul says, maybe that's why God did it. But ultimately, you don't need to know. You need to trust and obey. 
Why do they put the spark plugs on this side and the battery on that side? I don't know. But it works. I don't even know where they put the spark plugs. So here's the million dollar question. Here's the MDQ. What about free will? Because free will solves all the problems for us. Free will means, well, the reason they, they reject Christ and all of this is because that's what they chose. They had free will. They chose it. God never overrides your free will. I've heard that from pulpits before. God never overrides your free will. Main problem with that is it's the opposite of what the Bible says. He constantly overrides people's free will. He constantly chooses people before they're even born. John the Baptist, Jacob, Judas. Constantly happens, but the way I like to understand it, the way I like to explain it, shall we say, what about free will? You do have free will. I know you could probably find sermons of mine over my career where I said, you do not have free will. Bondage of the will, and I quote Luther. But the more I think about it, the, the better way to understand it is you do have free will within your nature. And we all understand that. I always ask you this way, why did you drive to church and not fly? I mean, you've got free will. Why don't we all just fly to church? Well, because it's not one of the options open to you because it lies outside of your nature. Why don't you just become invisible? That would be cool. Well, because it's not because you don't have free will. You have free will to choose anything you want within your nature. You're going to use free will today when you go and get a pizza. What topping do you want? Free will, whatever you put on there. But that's within your nature. You can't say, I want the invisible pizza. I'll make it invisible. You don't have that ability. So if you want to fly, you need a plane. If you want to breathe underwater, you need a scuba tank. And if you want to choose God, you need the Holy Spirit. It's not in your nature to choose God. Of course you have free will. How come everyone with free will doesn't just choose God then? I mean, it's heaven or hell. Seems like a pretty simple answer. And yet they don't. People just don't believe. There's evidence. There's eyewitness reports. They just reject it. The Pharisees had the eyewitnesses come and say, we saw these angels, everything. And the Pharisees were like, okay, here's some money. Tell people they stole the body. Where's that Pharisee's free will? Why isn't he using it? Because it's not in his nature. You cannot choose God. The Bible says that. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. An unbeliever's mind cannot submit to God's law. It's not in his nature. You need a new nature. That is the gospel. That's what the Bible's all about, how to get your new nature. Ezekiel 36 talks about taking out your heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. You don't do that. God does. John 3 talks about you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how is that possible? Jesus says, it's like the wind. You can see its effects, but you can't control it. It's up to God. You didn't help yourself get born the first time. You don't help yourself get born the second time. God does these things. You need a new will, a new heart, and you need to be a new creature in Christ. The Bible's full of this doctrine that you need God to act on you to make you choose right and give you a new nature. So, where does this leave us? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Where does this leave us? Three things. Firstly, great assurance. It gives me great assurance to know that God knows the future, that God writes the future, that God controls the future. So when he makes a promise to me, 
If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I know that he knows what he's talking about. I know that there's no future out there that he can't change, that I'm stuck in. I know that if he makes me a promise, he's going to be able to do it. So the, the doctrine of destiny is a wonderful doctrine for me. And you see Jude say this in Jude 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling. So I can put all my faith in the fact that I'm going to get over all the hurdles I need to, not because I'm really good at hurdling, but because it's up to him to make sure I don't stumble. So that's one wonderful part of this doctrine. Secondly, if a person that you love rejects the gospel, it's not entirely your fault. I know some people think, man, if I had been a better parent, my kid would be walking with the Lord. Maybe. But ultimately, that was their destiny. God might have used you messing up as his mechanism, but God decides, not you. And it also gives you hope that if the person's still alive, you don't know where those train tracks go. Only God does. But because he's in control of everything, you can actually pray to him. Otherwise, why even bother praying if God can't fix the future? God can do anything. And he says it. He wants you to pray about these things. And then thirdly, you might be sitting here today saying, what if I'm destined to destruction? What if I'm destined to be the person who stumbles over Jesus? What if I can't get saved? Like I said before, this is a doctrine of the glimpse under the hood of how things happen. But the instruction on how to drive the car is very simple. In the same way, the instruction on how to be saved is extremely simple. Even a child can understand it. Call on Jesus Christ for forgiveness. That's how you get saved. Know that you're a sinner. Cry out to Christ to save you. And he promises he will. Now, how all that happens? Stick here and maybe after 20 years of sermons, it'll start making some more sense to us. That doesn't matter. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Anyone, anywhere, can be saved at any time. That is what the Bible teaches. Anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. If you're there thinking, I really want to be saved, but what if I'm not destined to be saved? Why are you thinking that? Why are you interested in being saved? Why is that something that you want and that you fear you can't have? It's because you're not destined to stumble over him. If you were, you wouldn't care. And there may be people even sitting here today saying, I don't believe any of this, and I don't care. Well, even for you, it's not too late. Because the Holy Spirit changed my mind. And he can change yours. And that way he gets all the glory, and I get all the benefit. So that's where it leaves us. If you want to be saved, you can. Don't be wilded, bewildered by how the engine of salvation works. Just get in the car and obey Jesus. His role is to save you. Your role is to trust and obey. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father really is um, mystifying sometimes when we bump up against these deep doctrines that people have been thinking about and writing about for many, many centuries. And yet it can be so simple we are sinners, we need a Savior, 
And you have provided one through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for everyone here today that we would cling to the cross and what Jesus Christ did for us and that we would not try to take credit for any of that ourselves, but that we would give you all the glory because you are the one that deserves it all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.